This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I know you guys bust my chops for saying I have an extra special guest, but I have an extra special guest. Michael Lewis sat with me for nine hours. We talked about everything he's ever written since he was nine years old, and it is absolutely spectacular. So with no further buildup or ado, my conversation with Michael Lewis. I have an extra special guest today. His name is Michael Lewis. What can I say? You know about him from Liar's Poker, The New New Thing, Moneyball, The Blind Side, The Big Short, uh, The Undoing Project, The Fifth Risk. He has a new project, Against the Rules, a podcast about referees in life and whatever happened to fairness, which I have to tell you, I found quite fascinating. Michael Lewis, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. We, I, I really enjoyed speaking with you in Florida uh, at the that giant conference, and I felt we did not have enough time to fully flesh There's out. There's a reason you felt that way, because well, we didn't have enough we time. We did not have enough time. Right. So tonight, uh, uh, you'll be free around midnight. You'll get to go downtown, and then we'll, we'll set you loose. Let's set the table and start in the 1980s. You're working at one of the hottest bond firms in the world, but- you don't care. You had started a diary and had delusions of becoming a writer. Explain what you were thinking about. Before I went to work for Solomon Brothers, I'd started publishing magazine pieces mm-hmm. and had decided that's what I wanted to do, is be a writer, but had no sense that you could make a living doing this. You thought it was a hobby? I thought that, I didn't know, I just, I didn't know, because I was being paid by The Economist magazine, $90 for what amounted to three weeks' work. I Seems just didn't, fair. didn't see how this was going to work out as a living. So I, I thought, I, I thought I was going to write, but this job lands in my lap, I go take the job, and it, it's about six months before I realized that I'm going to write about the job. That, that, that it was such an extraordinary... I was sitting, you know, if you think back to where I early eighties, right? It was 1985. Mm-hmm. Solomon Brothers is making so much more money than every other Wall Street bank. It looks like it's in a different business. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I I land uh, as the sales in the sales arm of John Merriweather's derivative uh, his his proprietary trading book. So mm-hmm. I, I'm selling derivatives. Um, that's a fair way to start, start sitting, a career. Sort of sitting right in the middle of the firm and right in the middle of what's new. Uh, and, the, you know, it was just, it, it became pretty clear that, you know, I say this glibly, but actually, pretty clear I had stories to tell that just, just from my experience. I published a few of them while I was there. I had to write under a pseudonym because they caught me writing under my real name and they threatened well, let, to fire me. And let, all let's that. talk about that. You, under your actual name, while. Working at Solomon Brothers, you published a column in the Wall Street Journal essentially calling bankers overpaid babies. And <laughs> you describe what actually happened. What? Who called you into well, their office well, so, so and, and what in, was the compromise? So I was in London mm-hmm. uh, and I got to my desk in the morning and waiting for me at my desk was the head of Solomon Brothers International to say that he had had just a horrible night because of this piece that I'd written in the Wall Street Journal. And I was so pleased I had a piece in the Wall Street Journal, I thought everybody would be proud of me. But at the bottom of it, it said, Michael Lewis is an associate at Solomon (laughs) Brothers in London. And he said, you don't understand, Michael, he said, the board of directors has been meeting on the phone (laughs) about this piece. 
And for complicated reasons, well, maybe not that complicated reasons, they couldn't fire. They didn't, weren't going to fire me. They weren't going to fire me because I was generating a lot of money for the firm. I had a, I'd lucked into a really big customer. So they didn't want to fire me. Uh, they wanted to reach some agreement that would prevent me from doing this again. And he basically said, you shouldn't write. And I said, but you don't understand. I'm going to write. And he was simple. You know, Solomon Brothers is filled with interesting people. He was sympathetic to that. He knew, he understood what it was like to like to do something. Uh, he said, he said, could you write under a pseudonym? And I said, yeah, that'll work. I don't care. Nobody knows who I am. Uh, and we decided the pseudonym I should write under. It was my mother's maiden name, Diana Bleeker. Uh, he, and he said, that's great because no one will ever guess that a woman's a man. Uh, so you were using, you weren't doing Michael Bleeker, you were doing Diana, Diana Bleeker. Diana Bleeker. And I published a few pieces, not many, under the, Diana, the name Diana Bleeker, but they got a lot of attention because I, because I felt liberated. I could write about what was happening right next to me now. No one would ever track it back to me. And one evening, uh, this was in the, two years into my Solomon Brothers tenure, I got a call from Chevy Chase's father. Uh, Ned Chase, uh, who was Ned, a, so Chevy Chase from Saturday Night Live and the movies. His dad was a big shot New York editor, a book editor at Simon and Schuster. Uh-huh. And he said, "I figure I found out that Diana Bleeker is you, and I read these pieces, and you really have a book in you. Will you write a book?" And I didn't know what they were going to pay. I didn't have, but at, at that moment, I realized I can. I can, I can eke out a living doing this. So at that moment, I was out, out the door in my head. I had to wait a few months for my bonus to hit the account. But once my bonus, my bonus arrived, I was out the door and, I, and, I, and working. But, you know, I say that I was going to just write a book about my experience. But the book I sold, Liar's Poker, I have recently saw the proposal. It really was just a, like a history of Wall Street. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't even in the book proposal that I sold. And then when I started writing it, it, it was so clear to me that my experience was richer material than all this other stuff I was going to write about, um, that I just took off in that direction. And uh, that's the beginning of my career. How did Ned Chase figure out that you were Diana Bleeker? Like, what was his clue? (laughs) It wasn't, in the end, it wasn't that hard because the piece that had caught his attention was in The New Republic, then edited by, by Mike Kinsley. And Mike Kinsley refused to let me use a pseudonym without saying on the bottom, Diana Bleeker is a pseudonym. And uh, and so I think he called Kinsley, and Kinsley gave, told him. He gave you he, up. He gave me up. That, that, so, so here's the really interesting thing. You're making so much money at Solomon Brothers. Friends and family say, he wants to become a writer. We must stage an intervention. What, what on earth was that evening like? So it wasn't, it wasn't even friends and family. It was, it, it was friends and family. But the, my bosses at Solomon Brothers, when I told them what I was going to do, hauled me into a room. And they actually they, they could have cared less that I was going to go write a book about Wall Street, which sounds naive, right? But they just like, sure, go write your book about Wall Street. They were worried about my sanity. They, they, thought, they, they said, look, you made 250 last year. You're probably going to make twice that next year. And then from there, you're going to make lots of money here. Um, you're crazy to go do this. Don't go do this. Do this when. Do this later. And my father, who my father said to me the same kind of thing. He said, because he, he, this is my dad sitting in New Orleans, Louisiana, had a very nice career as a lawyer, but all of a sudden his son at age 24 is probably making roughly as much money as he is. And he, he's, he, what are you doing leaving that job? And he said, and he's never been one to give me advice, but he said, look, just wait 
wait 10 years. You're 24. You're 26 at that point. Wait 10 years. And when you're in your mid-30s, you can go take your millions of dollars and go write your novel. And the problem was that, you know, when you're 26, 36 seems ancient. Right. And I looked up to the people who were 36 at Sullivan Brothers, and I could not imagine any of them leaving. That you, you got so needful of the money and the position and the status, I was afraid I would become that, and I wouldn't. I'd lose this desire to do this other thing. So it was. Re- I didn't have any trouble. None of these. None of this advice had any effect on me whatsoever. Uh, the golden handcuffs were that obvious. People had levered up their mortgages, and they were trapped. They were living a life that I didn't particularly want to live, mm-hmm. but they were all living that life. They were all living a life that required millions of dollars. Um, and they were, and, and in addition, the other, I mean, my other dirty little secret was that it was, the job was really interesting for a year, year and a half, because I was learning so much. But after a year, year and a half, you, you know, you're not learning that much. Right. You're, you're doing the same thing over and over. And once I sort of got a sense of what this all, all was, the idea of coming and doing it again day after day after day was just deadening. I just I, I didn't actually believe deep down that if I'd stayed 10 years, I'd have gotten rich because I thought my disinterest in it would eventually have revealed mm-hmm. itself. M- makes a lot of sense. I have to ask one more question about Liar's Poker before we move on to some of the other books. You've said very specifically that you thought Liar's Poker would be an admonition, a warning to people about the evils of Wall Street. It turned out it didn't really have so that So I effect. didn't actually say that. I said that. You but what said did you that. say? So what I, I had a different added, I had a, I had a different view of the whole thing. And you, by the way, you and I have had this conversation. I think, well, I I'm coming around to your view that what you write may not be what other people read. So I didn't think Wall Street was evil. That wasn't the point. I thought it was preposterous. Okay. Uh, I thought that the idea that I was being paid that money to give financial advice w- was insane. Mm-hmm. So I thought, it was absurd, and and the only thing that really disturbed me about it at the time that got me upset, I mean, I, there were times where I felt a little uncomfortable about what I was expected to do to my customers, <laughs> but but um, but the thing that made me really queasy was seeing people who cared about other things being drawn into Wall Street just because that's where the money was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had friends in college who really just like they were. I had a good friend who was like born to be an oceanographer, and oceanography just looked like something he couldn't afford to do when Goldman Sachs is offering him this job right. coming out of, out of Princeton. So that I thought what, the purpose, to the extent I had a social purpose with the book, I thought young people will read it. They'll see what this is. They'll understand it's preposterous. They, if they have not got nothing better to do with their lives, they'll go to Wall Street. Or if they have a passion for finance, they'll go to Wall Street. But if they've got some other plan, they won't be distracted by the money. That's not that's not how people read it. What happened instead was um, two months after the book had come out, I had a stack of letters as high as my knee on the floor from kids at colleges uh, saying, and they all read the kind of the same way. Dear Mr. Lewis, I loved your book about how to get ahead on Wall Street. I think I've got all the principles, but I really want to know some things that other people don't know so that I can get there quicker. Uh, is there anything you left out that will help me like make it on Wall Street? So it became a how-to manual. So you and I have had this discussion before. You have made the claim that very often the book you write and set out into the world is very different than the book that people actually read. They bring their own biases and filters and 
they see things differently than perhaps you expect. I'm willing to make an even stronger case, and it okay. would be that if a book is any good, it has the capacity to be misunderstood. <laughs> and, 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 it's, and it's for this reason, that if I had been all aflame about the evils of Wall Street, um, instead of just kind of funny about it, Nobody would have read the book as a how-to manual. Mm-hmm. No one would have read the book anyway, but but they wouldn't have read the book. It would have been right. tedious. Like, who cares what you think? <laughs> I, tell me the story. And if you tell a story and you're telling it kind of honestly, you're leaving room for people to think different things about the story, just as people naturally would about any story. You tell 10 people the same story and they hear 10 different stories. Huh. They emphasize different things in their minds. You leave, you try to leave holes for the reader to have their own point of view. Now, I didn't, I didn't, do that intentionally with the first book but i think the fact that i was feeling kind of detached about wall street you know i didn't i wasn't it wasn't a moralistic diatribe mm-hmm. about wall street um and the book is very funny it's it, clear it like what i enjoyed with the people and the humor right right it was that, that the characters and the situation was it was it was rich and funny and interesting and i was at some level always grateful that solomon brothers gave me a job and at some level always kind of loved the place because of how curious it was it, it let it, it let me in it let all kinds of characters in who wouldn't naturally fit into a more ordinary corporate kind of environment how much did that shape what you looked for in future books cuz all of your writing contains interesting oddball quirky characters every book has that person as a driver they all have teachers as drivers. I mean, some of them, you're right, some of them are odd, but they all, all the quirky, all the main characters have the capacity to teach the reader something. I'd say mm-hmm. that's what they have in common. I wouldn't say like Brad Katsuyama in Flash Boys is a wildly quirky character. Um, you, on the podcast, which we'll get to later, you describe him as this unique bird in the... You, you, it's, he's a completely ordinary Canadian. Right. You put him on Wall Street, he's a freak. Right, because right? there are no completely ordinary Canadians on Wall Street. Uh, so that, that but he was working at Royal Bank of Canada, which is headquartered what in Toronto. I mean, he's yeah. kind of in the midst of it. Yeah, he was, he was their wall. He was down here in New York. But okay, he was their their U.S. stock trader, uh, head of U.S. stock trading. But but uh, so what? Liars Poker. Uh, the only a. I, it, had a, it had one very specific effect on what I wrote so subsequently. It made it possible for me to write the big short. That A lot of the people who were in the middle of the financial crisis, people who'd made a lot of the bad bets at the banks, I got into the business after reading Liar's Poker. So they, they, they felt an, a connection to me that led them to open up and t- talk to me. So that it was really important. It, it, let, it really did lead to that book. But other than that... Most of Liar's Poker's effect on the rest of my writing life has been negative. I just don't want in that in that I, I don't want to write the same book twice. Right. So I'm not looking for a, another Liar's Poker. Right. Just the opposite. Looking for something completely different. And and if we just take the course of um, the course of your bibliography, well, well, clearly um, Moneyball is something completely different. The new new thing is something totally different. I mean, it's not too hard to see how you go from subject to subject. There's a thread through all of these things that are fairly recognizable, but they're clearly different topics and different approaches. Right. In, in virtually all the others, with the exception of my little parenthood book and the book I did about my high school baseball coach, um, 
someone else is the main character mm -hmm. and not me. Uh, I, it's fun to have me as the main character. It makes it easy in some ways, but that's what I had in Liar's Poker. I, could, I myself could stand in for Billy Bean or Brad Katsuyama or Jim Clark or, I mean, I, that I could carry the book uh, because I had had that experience. Makes perfect sense. I want to ask you about The Fifth Risk. What, what motivated you to suddenly take on the transition of the newly elected president? Rick Perry. <laughs> In short, when Trump appointed Rick Perry to be Secretary of Energy, mm -hmm. I, I just, something clicked in my brain. And it was, it, it was well, first the memory of Rick Perry calling for the elimination of the Department of Energy when Oops. he was a presidential candidate, right. but not being able to remember its name on stage <laughs> when he was calling for its elimination. And he did it so cavalierly. I'm just going to get rid, if I was president, that's, I get rid of that. I thought, well, that's curious to pick a guy who says he wants to get rid of the thing to run the thing. He clearly, and then he came, then he came right full circle and said, I just didn't know what the thing did. I'm sorry I said that. Now I'm glad to be running it. He, so, he thought it actually was involved in energy as opposed to nuclear weapons and yeah, cleaning the, up so atomic I didn't waste. Know, so I realized at that point, whoa, I don't know what the Department of Energy does. What does it do? Like, what did we just hand this guy who doesn't know what it does? And it really should be called the Department of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, it's it's a vast science project that that among other things manages the nuclear arsenal. So I so then I thought, what happens in a society in a government where you're putting people so ill-equipped to run the thing into the position of running the thing? Uh, and it led you know once I started digging, it led to. The story of the transition, which was an incredible story, that there essentially wasn't one, that, that there's meant to be uh, a, a, a pretty elaborate handover of the government from one administration to the next, and that the Obama administration had prepared essentially this great course on how the government works. Uh, like a thousand people in the Obama administration had spent six months preparing these books, preparing these talks, so that whoever won... Right would come in and they could say, look, this is, this is how we dealt with the Ebola virus. This is how you assemble a nuclear weapon. This is the, these are the loose nukes that we're worried about in Eastern Europe. You know, this, lots of practical information. Uh, and that the Trump administration, Trump had fired his entire transition team moments after the election. The Trump administration had not shown up to get that knowledge. I thought, well, this it's given me first a device. I'm going to go get. I'm going to go get these mm -hmm. briefings. I'm going to go hear these things that they didn't bother hearing. And in fact, you're the only person who actually heard some of these briefings. Many. I, I, I think, I think the majority of the briefings I heard, I'm the only one who heard them. That, that's astonishing. It, no, it's more than astonishing. It's like it's it, and and they they weren't boring. You know, you would think government when if you said if we did like a word association game. Two years ago, and you said government, I'd say boring. Mm -hmm. And today, I, I'd say actually riveting. Riveting, the, riveting. It's it, especially riveting when it's in the hands of people who have no idea what it does. But but the the degree the what the U.S. government does in so many different sectors is so incredibly important. Include and including places where um, you don't much think the government has a place. Basic science research. Largely, corporate America has abandoned long-term scientific right. research, and so it's moved into the government. And there, there are mission-critical science projects scattered around the government that, if we don't do them, you know, we don't have a food supply in thirty years, kind yeah. of thing. And and it's uh, data collection. There's data in the, the the census, the weather data, so on and so forth. 
unbelievably valuable. If if we don't have um, prescription drug data that the government collects, we probably still don't know there's an opioid epidemic. You got people, you got thousands of people dying every year, tens of thousands of people dying every year, overdose. And the only reason it was found out was the federal government made available all the prescription drug data and geeks started hacking at it and said, well, this is a little odd. These pattern, the pattern of distribution of, of opioid prescriptions doesn't make any sense. Like more pills being dispensed in West Virginia than there are West Virginians. And, and uh, so it's the, the government is like the source of like important things are going on there. And so it's, that surprised me. The other thing that surprised me, if you asked me to play that word association game, government worker, I'd have said, mm, sleepy, maybe a little ambitious, beta. I don't know what I, it wouldn't have been flattering terms. Mm-hmm. The people I met, and there was like permanent civil servants, were the best people on the planet. They were like, really? it's, they were mission driven, passionate people. Go to the weather. The weather, if you spent two days at like the Storm Center at the University of Oklahoma, where they track tornadoes with the National Weather Service people there. You will find yourself in a room with like the really smart kid from the fifth grade who's, 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 who's like dog was killed when a tree blew over in a storm that no one warned them about and became obsessed with predicting weather events so no one, so no one got hurt. And they're, they're like they could make more money, twice as much money doing something else, but it's in the National Weather Service where they're where their passion has the biggest consequence. In in the book, you write a number of really fascinating factoids, and I'm going to come to some of them, but on weather prediction, you describe this as one of the great unsung achievements of the 20th century is how far our ability to forecast dangerous storms has, has advanced. Not just dangerous storms, like whether it's going to be sunny or rainy five days from now. Your, your fifth-day forecast now is as good as your one day was like 25 years ago. It's gotten that much better. And I don't know, I grew up in New Orleans. So, you know, hurricanes used to, when I was a kid, used to like come out of nowhere and you didn't know where they were going to hit. And you just kind of go out with a Frisbee and wait until it got too windy. <laughs> and, you go to, and that was and your you warning go, system. Yeah, that was your warning system. But but it, it's the, the uh, precision with which these storms now can be tracked. is a, It's a great, it's a great intellectual achievement. And it's an achievement, maybe more to the point, that, it's not just the government, but without the government, it doesn't happen. The government collects all the data. So so let's talk about that, because in the book, you describe a congressman who wants to get the government out of the weather forecasting business and turn it all over to one the of the private, private sector. Right. <laughs> which, which uses all of the government data. Yeah, it's like... Which is like a $3 billion a year uh, The congressman said to the head of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, in a hearing, uh, and the weather service is inside of NOAA, said, why do I need you? I can get my weather from AccuWeather. And she said, you know, where do you think AccuWeather gets its weather? It gets it from us. You know, without us, AccuWeather can't make a forecast. They don't have the buoy data. They don't have the satellite data. They don't have the radar data. Plus, the weather models all originate out of the National Weather Service. Now, it's true that each of these private weather companies now has its own little wrinkle on weather prediction, but the bulk of the both the information you need to make the prediction and the intellectual work about how to handle that information came out of the government. So it's ins- it's insane to say you give it over to the private sector. Um, the private sector wouldn't, in the first place, collect the data. 
Now, having said that, um, it's also true that the private sector has made contributions. It's important. And the government it encourages this partnership. Mm-hmm. It opens, gives all this data to everybody for free. Hack away at it. If you can find a better way to predict you know, like when the tornado is going to happen, we're all ears. Um, but, but it's a kind of like an open source thing that everybody has to have access to this. And into the position of running this operation, Trump has appointed the, C, the former CEO of AccuWeather, who has campaigned for 20 years to essentially prevent the National Weather Service from communicating with the American people uh, on the grounds that if you can make money with this in the private sector, the government shouldn't be competing with you, uh, which is, I mean, nuts. The American taxpayers paid for all this data. How much have, have we paid for all that data? Uh, it's, I mean, several billion dollars a year. It's a running cost. It's, uh, it's, it's close to half the budget of the Department of Commerce, this weather collect, data collection. And the idea that the Weather Service, like, he prevented them from having an app. Uh, but they, should, they, they shouldn't have a website. They shouldn't have a, It is insane. Um, and if you restrict the access to the data uh, to a handful of companies that happen to have an inside track right now, the Weather Channel or AccuWeather, whoever it is, you prevent the next smart geek in his basement from finding new patterns in the data that they help us predict the weather. Um, so it, it's a, it is a, there's a public enterprise side to this. Just like there's a, or a public good side to this. And a, mm-hmm. just like there's a public good side to long-term scientific research. And that is a, that, offers a natural role for the government and that attracts some really interesting people. And that's what surprised me, uh, you know, and I think I, I had the felt I had the luxury of not paying much attention to it because it seemed to like kind of run itself badly or well. And whatever I thought or said about the government wasn't going to have any effect. But now all of a sudden it feels like it's at risk of being seriously disabled. So all of a sudden it's gotten to be kind of interesting material. So some of the, some of the specific factoids you bring up in the book I just pulled five or six aside because I were just fascinated by these. There are two million federal employees, seventy percent of whom work in national security. That's a mind-blowing stat. I assumed there were all these bureaucrats and pencil pushers. Most of the government spends their time working and personnel working to keep everybody else safe. Safe. That's the basic function of the government, uh, and. How is that and it's not- also it's also you know another kind of misunderstanding is that like the federal workforce is just out of control. There are fewer federal workers per capita than there were thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. The thing that's really alarming about the federal workforce is how it's aged. Uh-huh. Uh, that, that young people don't want to go work there anymore. And you got so you got um, in information technology alone in the federal in the in the federal government. Five times more people uh, over the age of sixty than under the age of thirty. Wow! So you, you know, no tech company could function that way. Right. And so th- this is when you look at what's what's happening is we're kind of living on borrowed time with the federal government, it, it, running on fumes, and it's all a consequence of this enterprise being basically demonized and and allowed for decades now, and 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 allowed partly by Congress uh, to atrophy. I mean, it's it's just too hard to hire and fire people. Mm-hmm. It's too. Who wants to go work for a place where the only thing, the only time you're ever recognized is if you just screw up, and right. if you screw up, you're in the front page of the Washington Post. But but if but you do something great, like who's nobody pays any attention. Uh, it, you're not certainly not going to get rich. 
Uh, so it's it's why why can't we find out more short of the next Michael Lewis book? Why aren't more of a perfect example? I didn't know until I read the book that fracking, the technology for fracking, which has brought out so much gas and, and natural gas and, and crude oil and allowed the United States to effectively become energy independent, that was the brainchild of the Department of Energy Research. Yes. How is that not known by people or other that, than you or, or people who read your book? Or that, or that the entire solar power industry begins with funding from the Department of Energy or that the Tesla factory that makes cars in Fremont, California starts with a loan from the Department of Energy. Right. They're, they're both uh, big loan guarantee programs and essentially a, a, essentially a venture capital fund run by really smart people who come in and out from industry, from universities to fund kind of very long term uh, ideas that aren't going to pay off in the long term. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the gap in the market, right? If 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 if, uh, if there's research that will pay in a, two or three years, corporations will fund it. But if there's research that that may not pay off for thirty years, uh, there's no there's you know there used to be more of that in corporate America, Bell Labs or sure. Xerox Park or but the markets have encouraged are discouraged long term that kind of long term investment, which means the government's even more important. Um, China isn't hesitating to make no. That's exactly right. This is exactly right. I, I think so. Here's what I think. I think we're at an inflection point. I think that the society, if it's going to succeed, can't be hostile to its own government. We're mm-hmm. bizarre in this way, and there isn't another democracy where people think the government is is evil, uh, or 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 the problem. Uh, now, people in Europe might say the French might say, or the British might say the the European government's a problem. But, but, but the idea of kind of turning your ire or on your own government—it's it's like self-defeating. I think someone is going to emerge who can sell the government. I think a politician is going to emerge because it's not that hard to sell. Once you start, once you start explaining people what it does, and we, and once you trot out some of the people who are doing what they're doing. It's an, it's an inspiring place in many ways. So, like a Mayor Pete or yes. a Beto or I think a Kamala a Mayor, Harris. I think Mayor Pete might be the ideal person to do this. Mm-hmm. So, yes, for me, I'm just an opportunist. I'm looking for story. <laughs> I'm I'm looking for stories to tell that surprise and interest me. That might surprise and interest a reader. And Trump was a gift because his willingness to entirely neglect. This enterprise, two million person enterprise, he's tasked to run, left an opening uh, to go learn about it. Huh. So last three bullet points from the fifth risk that I'm fascinated by, either tech or A&M. So anytime you see Texas A&M or Virginia Tech, all these colleges were formed on the basis of U.S. land grants? Yes, back in the mid-19th century. The same legis- body of legislation that created the Department of Agriculture, mm-hmm. uh, creates these the, these schools. And it's it's Lincoln's observation, I think, that we need to make, uh, we need to bring science to agriculture. And, uh, and let's talk and, about that because, again, from your book, in 1872, the average farmer fed four people. And due to the ag colleges and the A&M colleges, they, the average farmer now feeds 155 people? Yes. 
So think about that. What that does is it enables a modern life. It, that you free people from the farms and the burden of having to grow stuff, and they can do other things. So 60% of the uh, labor pool used to be uh, farm-based, and now it's single, low single digits. It's tiny, right. It, it's amazing. And then the last one I just have to ask you about, disposable diapers invented by NASA. Is this true? <laughs> Yeah, that was a throwaway line. That's right. Uh, one of the characters in the book is Kathy Sullivan, who ran, who was the head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and so ran the National Weather Service under it. And she was, before that, uh, the first, she was an astronaut, and she was the first American woman to walk in space. Uh, extraordinary character. Absolutely. But, but this is an, an illustration of my general point that you'd be amazed who you find in government when you start banging on the doors. Hmm, quite fascinating. His latest project, for reasons unfathomable to me, a podcast by the name of Against the Rules. You're you're a writer. You're you're an author. Why dabble in in this podcast you, thingy? Uh, you're not feeling threatened, are you? Yeah, that's what I, I'm. This is a competitive concern. <laughs> by the way, I've listened to your whole first season, mm-hmm. except for episode six, which wasn't ready for me. It's great. I really love it. It's totally your voice. I mean, I don't mean you speaking, which is also takes place, but it's so Michael Lewisy. It's just infused throughout that each one of these segments, each one of these podcasts are like a chapter in a Michael Lewis book, which kind of raises the question, why not a book? It's a really good question. And the answer is that, so there's some kind of material that seems to be very naturally a book. Narrative material is what I really prefer. Mm-hmm. And that's where you have a character that you can follow from beginning to end. And that's most of the real books I've done. It, it, there's a, it, it's, the structure is not all that different from a novel. This was an idea, and the idea was referees in American life. It's, it's people whose job is to maximize fairness, enforce the rules, uh, not just sports referees, but judges and government regulators. And I mean, we kind of wander with the idea. But each, the, this was essay material. This wasn't narrative material. Right. Um, each chapter, and there are seven episodes, so there are seven chapters in a book. They'd all go together, but you wouldn't feel like you were reading exactly the same story. You'd, There's a theme that connects everything, everything but they're but all distinct. They're all distinct. It's like a bunch of short stories around, set in the same place. Right. Um, Although and, not always. Some of it's New Jersey, some of it's Berkeley. Yeah, but but it's right. But it, but I thought that this material, I've, I've wondered about the, your medium. I've wondered about... How, you know whether I could pull off a podcast. It's a very lazy medium to do what I do, which is con people to come in here and have a conversation with me. So I have it easy. Yours is a very well. It's narrative. It's narrative, but it's 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 like it's a series of short stories that are or essays that are strung together. And I had the feeling that if we did it this way, it would feel more like one story because you have that person's voice there all the time. Mm-hmm. And and it was just it was material. I never would have written a book about it. I never would have written a book about it. So let's start with the first episode about referees, which is kind of interesting. I mean, literally, referees in the NBA. Right. Um, I found it amusing you bringing your son in, who who seems to not be thrilled with with the officiating in in his uh, league. He plays for he played. He's moved on. He played for a Japanese Buddhist temple in the right. Japanese Buddhist Temple League. And he was getting thrown out of games. I mean, he got he got booted for fouling out, but he'd come out and he'd be steam coming out his ear and be screaming at the referee. He's 10 years old or 11 years old. That's not very zen. 
but he picked it up from the Warriors. That's where he got. That's where so he he's got watching it. TV. He's watching. Right. He's watching Steph and Clay right. and Durant, and, and they're screaming at the refs too. And uh, and so I, you know, that was one of the things that got me interested because he's otherwise my son is actually very mild mannered, kind of sweet and detached, and but refs drive him nuts and he's always sure he's a victim like he's they're, they're all it's always against him which, which is preposterous the guy on the court's like a buddhist uh, he's not against anybody and <laughs> makes no sense so so um you tell the story about the replay center in new jersey so, which was mind-blowing so there's a bigger point the bigger point is there's more friction now between especially the star players, but the players on the court and the coaches and the NBA refs than there's ever been. That it's regard, The NBA is starting to regard this as a kind of crisis, like this problem, the, the, this conflict. And, of course, this bleeds into the way the fans treat the refs, right. the way the refs are treated on the street. They need bodyguards to go back and forth to their insane. hotels. It's insane. But you also point out that the officiating has never been better. There's no question. I mean, uh, this there's no question. If you back away from it... And, um, it used to be a handful of kind of dumpy white guys, a lot of whom went to the same high school, who were not who were there because they were part of a club, who didn't get any particular training, uh, who 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 uh, those were the refs, and they they were not checked really checked in any way. We have now a highly professional, highly trained workforce that has video replay to go to to fix its mis- some of its mistakes when it makes mistakes, acknowledges it makes mistakes, uh-huh. uh, so we'll fix them has to review any error it makes after the games so they're you know they're told where you made mistakes in addition they've been studied every which way for racial bias for right. home court bias for all these and they've been informed about their various biases there's no way that referee is not more accurate than the referee of 20 or 30 years the, ago. The home court bias was a real thing, much less so today than it once was. That's a really good example. It, 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 it's a it's a good example of of why you want good independent refs. It's a good example of how independence gets undermined. Home court, a large part of home court advantage was simply the refs favoring the home team. And they do that because if you don't, you get screamed at, right? (laughs) That's it. It's just human behavior. It's human behavior. They now do it much less. There is less of a home court advantage in the NBA. The home team is not as likely to win as as it used to be. And the refs are mercilessly treated by the by the crowds. So so let's talk about another segment because I could talk about that. We'll come back to basketball later. So you talk to a woman who has an issue with her student loan. She's a teacher and she believes she's qualified to get a waiver after 10 years of the balance. So there's a program. So Congress created a program in 2007 to relieve the student debt of public servants. So, so teachers, public school teachers, firemen, firemen policemen, soldiers— and uh, and set up, you know, the criteria for qualifying for this program. And this is a woman who did, in fact, qualify for the program, uh, and whose servicer, Navient. Mm-hmm. Um, a publicly traded company. A publicly traded company whose interest is keeping her in her student loan. They get paid for having her there. Right. Um made it virtually impossible for her to get into the program. And when and this program that was created, 30,000 people have applied to it and out of how many? Should that how they, many are there probably another there probably another another 30,000 who are eligible who don't even heard of it. 96 people have qualified for the program. That's astonishing. And, and it, the, the broader story was, this is a story about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It it's 
It's like who should referee this space between big finance and ordinary Americans who are dealing with big finance. And this be, it seems to me very obvious that this space needs a referee. In our, every other aspect of our consumer lives is a referee. There's a consumer uh, product safety commission. Your toaster doesn't blow up beca- right. because, because you've got people who are there who will pull it off the market if it does. Um, and, and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was created on the back end of the financial crisis right. to essentially be a referee. And the story, I think the story of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is how hard it is to create a referee in this world, even when it's obvious that you need one. Because what's been happening the last two years is Trump has been gutting it. Uh, and the, they even tried to rename rename it the Bureau of something blah, something blah blah blah. Just they to, just to just to distract. And it was like a multi million dollar project to waste money doing that to make it less attractive to the consumer out there. Right. You talk about that. It's it's yeah. And so, by the way, the theme in all of this, which kind of is a theme in 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 the Big Short, it's a theme in Moneyball, it certainly is a theme in Flash Boys, is how unfair so much of this life is and here's a person who just wants to make it right that that is absolutely consistent throughout all of against the rules and so many of your books or do you disagree no i agree i agree and the the, the curious thing about the podcast was you've got it's about the it's the story of this character the referee who's under attack at a time when when issues of fairness seem to be more heated than they've ever been in American life. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe not since since like a century ago. That that national politics, the the, the political campaigns that gained traction, the Sanders, Bernie Sanders campaign, or the Trump campaign, were all all got their energy from anger about unfairness. Uh-huh. Uh, and that in this environment, we're making it hard for referees. It's perplexing. I think there's an answer. There's a reason. But uh, what's your what's your pet thesis? My pet thesis is. Referees have a harder time the more unequal the environment their refereeing is. So if you have two people who are just who are basically the same power, money, and so on, mm-hmm. it's easy to ref that situation compared to having LeBron James versus a bench warmer. And and I think it's a the pressure on one of the pre- sources of pressure on referees is is inequality in the society. Mm-hmm. Another source of pressure is is technology. I mean that. That when they screw up now, it's all over the it's all over the internet, and and people who are upset by whatever mis- the mistake was can gather together to cause more trouble for the referee. Sure, look look what happened pre Super Bowl with um, the blown call. Yeah, I mean, perfect, perfect example. It's a really good example, right? It, that, that those kind of calls have probably happened all the time in the NFL, right. but we've gotten the forces that are there to assault the referee have gotten stronger and stronger and stronger, and there's no there's no counterbalancing force to protect the referee. So you have the, the city of New Orleans out on the streets right. during the Super Bowl instead of watching the right. boycotting. That just wouldn't, you know, if that if a similar sort of injustice had taken place 20 years ago, it would have been people have been angry for a moment and forgot about it. So what was your experience like doing the podcast? Did you enjoy it? Was it fun? Was it more work than you expected? Shall we expect another 7 episodes next year? To tell us about that that experience you had creating this it was it was both more work and more fun than i thought it was gonna be mm-hmm. i got into it because my two friends jacob weisberg and malcolm gladwell who've created right. a podcasting company 
basically Pushkin said, Industries, it will, of course. It Everybody's will, it, heard of it. It will be a lot of fun, and it's not that big a deal. It's not that hard. In fact, no, no. This this crap that you and I are doing, this is easy. This is I I live a a gentry gentrified life. What you did, that's serious production writing. Like there's, you could tell a boatload of work went into that. A lot of that. work went into it. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to do another season. It it'll be that decision will be driven entirely by the reception to this one. If people were, if I can get to people in this medium, I'll try again. But if I can't, it's pointless to try again because it really was a lot of work. So I could tell you, so far you have an audience of one like. I really enjoyed it. But to be fair, I listened to it a few weeks after our conversation in Miami. In a, I'm sorry, a few weeks after our conversation in a Hollywood, Florida, and in anticipation of this. So I kind of crash-coursed it, but I, I really enjoyed it. Your, your pal Malcolm Gladwell is doing a revisionist history. I've heard that. He could not tell you it wasn't a lot of work because that sounds like a lot of work also. Yeah, no, he said afterwards that maybe he'd underestimated the amount of work involved. <laughs> right. I, I'm serious. I, this is fun for me. This is easy. I, put to, I, I read all your books. I put some questions together. You do all the heavy lifting. My job is to just get out of your way. Creatively, it's an interesting experience, though. That It's different from writing a book in mm-hmm. a bunch of ways, but and a bunch of little ways and big ways. One of the big ways is what when you can hear the voices of the characters. Yeah. When I write the voice of the character, you know, just quoting them, you don't really hear the voice. You don't hear the, how what it sounds like. When you hear what someone sounds like, you learn a lot. You 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 know you hear the woman whose student loans have crushed her life. Her teeth are falling out her of her head. Her teeth are falling out of her head. She has three little kids and she's a public school teacher. And her, she's grinding her teeth, and they're falling out of her head. She's that stressed out over this. And you don't think that person's a fraud. No. You don't think that person's lazy. You don't think that person's anything but in a sad state that she, no one should be in. It's an unfair situation. But and, and, in a way, I could never get across in print uh-huh. because you just wouldn't believe me. You, but you believe her. So I, you, you, she, there's something about those voices that enable you to cut through prejudice or preconceived ideas that it's harder to do as an author. A lot of what I do as an author in a funny way is, is preached to converted. I don't know how many minds I change when I am writing. Um, I think, I think this form can change minds. Huh? Well, I have to tell you, I really enjoyed it. I hope you bring it back for a second season. I am looking forward to hearing the finished product. What I heard was like three quarters done. Yeah. Um, I, I can easily, I can strongly recommend it. It was really interesting. Can you stick around a little bit? I have some more questions for you. Yes. We have been speaking to Michael Lewis. He is the author of, you know, all his books and his new upcoming podcast is Against the Rules. If you enjoy this conversation, we'll be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things Michael Lewis related. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Bloomberg, uh, Stitcher, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. Uh, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Check out my daily column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at at Ritholtz, 
I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Michael, thank you so much for doing this. I, I have to share a funny story with you um, about the referee segment in uh, in Against the Rules, yep. uh, the NBA referee segment. And you're the perfect person to tell this. Here's a, here's a little bit of NBA re- officiating and behavioral economics all wrapped up in one. So I'm a long-suffering Nick fan during the Ewing, Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley, John Starks, Anthony Mason era. I lived a few blocks from the Garden. I had season tickets. I would go all the time. The officiating made me crazy. You you mentioned in the uh, podcast, you mentioned Larry Bird. Really, Michael Jordan was the guy who had his own set of rules unofficially, and, and he got away with everything. He was constantly tormenting the Knicks. And then a few years later, up comes this monstrosity Shaquille O'Neal and he's uh, Patrick Ewing is a big guy Shaquille O'Neal is constantly bodying him hitting him fouling him no calls and I just couldn't understand how completely unfair and terrible the officiating is put a pin in that a second a buddy of mine invites me to an NIT invitational game at the garden the the next tier of college players below the the March Madness uh, you know, I'm not a crazy college basketball fan, but they're on the floor. I'll go. Big Joe Bessaker of Emerald Asset Management. He's six five. He's three hundred pounds, and his team is in in this this game. So we're sitting there courtside. You can't miss him. He's a mountain of a man. And I'm watching the game, and I have no vested interest in the outcome. I could not care less who wins or loses. But these are fantastic seats. The players are great. I have a front row. Wow, this is awesome. I've never seen a game. I was up in section 205 normally. Courtside, awesome. Except for the fact that Joe Besker screaming at the ref constantly. Ref, you're walking. I go, Joe, that's one and a half step. That's a foul. What are you doing? No, Joe, the ball is part of the hand. It's not. And every and he's pulling his hair out of his head. Oh, my God, this is the worst. And all of a sudden, I just had this like 15 years ago. I have a realization you were that guy. <laughs> I, I was that guy. That subjective lack of ability to pull out my rooting for my team for any objective ability to evaluate the game. So take your son to a game with two other teams that he doesn't care about and see what he says about the officiating. No, that's exactly right. No one ever has a problem if they don't have a, a rooting If it's interest. not your team. You, you yes. know, why is it that the officials suck with your team? But with the rest of the league where your team's not involved, they're not And bad. why is it that both sides think the refs suck? Both sides think the refs have screwed them in some way. That's not possible. If somebody got screwed, the other person's a beneficiary of it. Uh, it's zero sum. One would think, right? Right. It's, it's amazing. So, you would think for everybody who's upset with the ref, there'd be someone on the other side who's happy with the ref. But that's not the way it works. So as I listened to the first episode of, of Against the Rules, all I can think of was Big Joe Bessica screaming and me saying... You know, there's a subjectivity and a lack of of ability to separate yourself from your desires and goals. And well, so then throw into that, in addition to that, um, the idea that you're making that the refs are actually getting better, that they're actually making more accurate calls. Who's going to be furious when that happens? People who are used to getting the benefit, who are used to getting right. the calls. So the the problem now in the, the NBA, superstars, the superstars are furious. Right. 
because they're not getting as many calls as they used to get, and they expect them. Uh, so you describe in, and you we, we kind of uh, passed by this too quickly before, you describe in the podcast the replay center that every time there's a basketball game, not too far from where the high-frequency co-located traders servers are, is a giant warehouse filled with hundreds and hundreds of screens. 110 television screens and nothing on them but direct feeds. Fiber optic, there's fiber optic cable from that replay center in Secaucus to the 29 arenas in the NBA where, where they play. And, and the pictures on the screens are nothing but the cameras, the angles of the court. Right. So you don't get, you don't get the scores. You don't, you don't even, you don't even know who's playing. No announcers. No announcers, no commercials. No, it's whatever's happening in that arena. So if you went and danced naked in the middle of the floor in the, you know, on some day when a bunch of people would throw up in New Jersey, they would see you in New Jersey. Right. Uh, No matter when you did it, it's just constant. And so that center was built to defend referees. Huh. From this growing chorus of outrage, um, it, the the reason I mean, it co- fifteen million bucks it cost to build that center, and they only change two calls a game. Uh, two calls a game. Two they calls reverse. a game. But it's to create. It's just a weapon that to try to defend the refs huh. from these growing attacks. That's that's you need it because if you don't have it, the refs the refs are doing a pretty good job anyway. Yeah, and they only turn changing two calls a game here. Um, but it's, it's, it's like, it's needed in order to assure everybody that they're, that they, they know stuff you don't, that that someone objectively is looking at this over and over and giving you the right answer because they don't feel, nobody trusts the refs anymore. So, so let's stay with basketball and the shift gears on you away from the podcast and back towards the undoing project. You tell the story in the beginning about essentially the Billy Bean of the NBA, um, Daryl Daryl Morey, right, GM which, of the Houston Rockets. So, so again, there's a theme that seems to run consistently through your work, which is here's a really interesting guy in a challenging job who wants to approach it very, very differently. T- tell us a little bit about how you discovered him and how that got worked into the Undoing Project. So he got in touch with me after Moneyball came out to thank me because he thought the book was responsible for him getting hired to run a basketball team. Really? That's and amazing. Because his the owner of the Rockets had read the book and said, nobody is using data in the NBA as well as it could be used. Uh, and there'll be inefficiencies that we can exploit too. Mm-hmm. And Daryl was part of the business side of the Boston Celtics, of the of the ownership group that had bought the, the, the Boston Celtics. And I guess he, the owner heard about him and said, you know about these analytics, come, come here. And he gave him the job. So Daryl, and so from that moment, I started paying more attention to what Daryl was doing at the Houston Rockets. And it's been riveting because it's for him, it's like one big lab experiment. Uh-huh. I mean, he's trying to win, but he's also trying to learn. He's trying to just kind of create new basketball knowledge. And where he came into the Undoing Project was, here was a person who was sort of state of the art in in both both analytics and in sort of being aware of the mistakes people make when they're making judgments about basketball or basketball players. Um, and the, by the way, the parallel back and forth between um, Moneyball and the Undoing Project, what some of the scouts said in in Moneyball is he doesn't have a 
a player's body. He's got an ugly girlfriend. Like the the cliches and, and prejudices were absurd, but there are a different set of cliches with the basketball players. Right. And so but he, what interested me was here was a person he'd been running. By the time I walked into his life to write that chapter in The Undoing Project, I mean, he'd been on the job for seven or eight years. And he had purged the operation of the kind of dumb scouting uh, approach. Give us some some examples. And, well, I mean, he nicknames. What? Yeah, well, no. So, so, but, the, but even in his scouting, even with all the smart people he had around the table, they had an incredible difficulty keeping the m- mistakes that the human mind makes when it's making judgments uh-huh. out of the room, and he had to. Be, they built. They would. They built in kind of rules to try to guard against errors in judgment. So, for example, they made when they saw when they made a mistake, he would analyze the mistake. And when they made a mistake, they had opportunity to draft uh, Mark Gasol, Paul Gasol's mm-hmm. little brother, future NBA All Star. Um, and one of the scouts pulled up a picture of Gasol on the internet, and he was in, without a shirt on, and he had man boobs, right. he had fleshy, flabby boobs. And the scout gave him, whenever he was referred to, from then on he was referred to as man boobs, and they didn't draft him. And you think that's why? He thinks, there's no question in the fact that they gave him a nickname, distorted everybody's judgment. From the moment he was called man boobs, there was no way they were going to draft him. Amazing. So he banned nicknames. He said, no nicknames. It it distorts our judgment of the person. Another example, he he noticed that when uh, scouts were arguing for a player, they'd draw analogies. They'd say, he looks a little like Michael Jordan, or he reminds me of Magic, or you know, he looks like Shaquille O'Neal, or whoever right. it is. Invariably, he noticed, um, the analogies were within the same race. Black guys always reminded people of black guys, and white guys always reminded people of white guys. And uh, nobody thought, oh, a black guy reminded him of Larry Bird, or a white guy reminded him of Magic. And he thought... That the, 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 he said he 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 banned ra- analogy, analogies within race. He said you can compare a player to another player and say, oh, he plays a lot like X if the guy is a different race. And he said at that moment, it all just it just stopped. Huh. It just stopped. <laughs> so I actually love my favorite part of the Genesis story of the book came about because you you write the the you write um, was it Moneyball or the Big Short. That uh, Thaler and Sunstein write and say, "Hey, you guys left." It was out. Moneyball. So I, they, they, that I'd written Moneyball, and I, you know, I knew, I thought I, I knew what that book was about, and it was about this, this front office that found using data better ways to value baseball players and baseball strategies, and reveal that markets make huge mis- misjudgments when they value people. When the book came out, uh, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. Um, wrote a review in the New Republic basically saying that I didn't know what my own book was about. And that what, what it really was was a case study in, of Kahneman and Tversky's work. And I went, who? You know, I didn't know who they were. Uh, and this was Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And Kahneman had won the Nobel Prize in economics the year I wrote Moneyball. Right. Um, you have to be alive to win the prize. Tversky had passed away earlier. That's right. And, uh, and you, by the way, so I'm going to interject here. You were uniquely situated to write this book for a number of reasons, and you, uh, you, you've pushed back about this, but you're wrong. And I want to get you to to write which book, the Undoing, to, the Undoing Project? Project, because 
First of all, you had written Moneyball, which was effectively a, a case study in their work. Right. It's sort of like, the, because what they had done is classify all the mistakes that the Oakland A's were exploiting in right. Moneyball. But, but more importantly, you had a relationship with Kahneman, or, or at least his family, that you, with, you barely with, even were with, aware so, of. So, in some ways, before I write a book, I do like to tell myself a story about why I'm the one who should be writing this book. Okay. And usually the story holds up pretty well in my mind. In this case, the story I told before the Undoing Project was, yes, it's got a connection to Moneyball. Uh, yes, I know the Tversky family. Yes, Danny Kahneman lives up the hill from me in Berkeley. <laughs> but where I, where, I hit a, where, I hit a, where I hit a roadblock was, no, I don't know a thing about the field of psychology. And... Um, and no, I don't know a thing about the origins of the state of Israel and, and the Hebrew University Department in which all of this stuff got cooked up. And now, with most things, I re- most books, I mean, part of the joy of writing the book is having to learn new things. Sure. So that's not, that, in and of itself, that's not the problem. The big problem was I did have a sense with these two characters, Kahneman and Tversky, that I, were, I was writing about people who were so much smarter than I was that I was never going to be able to get my mind around them, that, I, that, that, it was, that it was going to always feel like the B student writing about the A student. And that caused me to hesitate for, really? ye- for years writing the book. I'm I, sure I had, to hear that. I, st- I spent, I mean, normally from the moment I just get, get, a, get like a Jones for a subject to the moment I got a book out, it's like three years. And mm. in this case, it was nine Wow. And I, I shoved it aside and said I wasn't going to do it four or five times. So so what made you finally pull the trigger and say, let's I, write this? People started to die. The people who were help, <laughs> the people who were helping me with the book. I mean, their colleagues, their, it, the story was dying. And I looked around and I asked myself, well, who else is going to write this? And it became quite clear no one else was going to write it. And it's effectively a love story, isn't it? It is. It's a love story between those. It's a platonic love story. It, 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 the the these two guys, each of who each of them is a great literary character, and together it's this combustible, wonderful force. Right, and it it's it's about that relationship and how that relationship. You know, I framed the book in my mind lots of different ways in lots of different moments, but one of the ways I framed it for a while was, it's just about the power of collaboration. Two, what two minds can do together when they really fit together is just so different from what my, one mind will do on its own. What one plus one is three. That was that feeling, yeah. And and you really bring it so so richly to life. The story of them being behind closed doors and just peals of laughter, hours and hours at a time, and everybody wondering what the hell is going on. But, and also, but but it's a Israel makes academics much more interesting than than most other places because the academics are forced to interact with the society. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got to be useful. Everybody's right. got to be in the army. So they were drawing their their insights from rich interactions with the world around them. Mm-hmm. And that that helped bring, I mean, what was would otherwise be a kind of a dusty academic story to life. Uh, well, the whole thing with Tversky and the uh, fighter pilots and the reversion to the mean, like to, there's a, still a giant leap that gets made from when you're yelling at an um, enlistee or pilot or what have you, well, if they're underperforming, they'll eventually mean revert. And if they're overperforming, They'll mean revert, so praise doesn't help, and yelling at them seems to work. Yes, that, that this is Kahneman's insight that mm-hmm. that life has this horrible feedback loop, this lesson it teaches us that 
we get response to our punishment, but not to our praise. Uh, because because you're praising someone when they're naturally performing better than usual, and you're punishing them or uh, criticizing them when they're naturally performing worse than usual. And mean reversion will make will, will tend to make them better after you've criticized them, and tend to make them worse after you've praised them. So so I took I actually took when I learned that from him, I I changed the way I coach little kids. I basically stop I I stop with a criticism except except when it was really lathered in in when it almost sounded like praise. And what was the result when you as much that? happier environment. I'm not sure anything I said ever had any effect, but everybody <laughs> it, was happier. That that makes that makes a whole lot of sense. Let, last question on Kahneman and Tversky. Um they describe the role of luck in life and they really emphasize it a lot. Tell us a little bit about about that part of um their beliefs, their writings. How important is luck to who we are and how successful we become? You know, they, they, um, I think the way they would put it is that people, people have extraordinary pattern recognition abilities and they see patterns even in randomness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they don't, they're not good at seeing randomness and understanding what randomness means. Um, I mean, you saw this with the, it was, that was, that was, uh, sort of one of the themes that ran through the Moneyball story is that one of the things the Oakland A's front office was able to do was exploit other people's misunderstanding of randomness. Mm-hmm. That a, a hit, if a, a pitcher pitched a few innings and pitched them really well, uh, they'd start to get overvalued. Uh, a very small sample with, a ran- with, with lots of randomness baked into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they could sell them for more than he was worth. Conversely, someone who had a, 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 a short, bad streak would start to get undervalued, um, but the so so the the, the general idea that 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 Tversky and Kahneman do play with a bit is is that people are mistaking uh, a random event for a meaningful event and mm-hmm. vice versa. Um, the broader thing that interests me is the way people dismiss it in their lives. Uh, I mean, I, the, the, there's so much luck in life, and people after the fact are really good at telling a story about how it was inevitably so. Um, Kahneman, Tversky had this wonderful line that, um, that life isn't a point, it's a cloud of possibilities. Uh-huh. And that, that at any given time, there's anything could have happened. And just because it did happen didn't mean it had to have happened. But, we, but, we, but we're, we're sort of like deterministic machines in a probabilistic world. There's, there are certainly elements of that, but there's also a whole lot of ego that if it's luck, then it wasn't my genius and my hard work, and I made this happen. If you're going to say it's lucky, you're taking my accomplishment away from me, or so some people seem to behave. Absolutely. I mean, it's a really flattering, successful people, yeah. uh, or people who feel successful, don't are, are, I think, probably less likely to acknowledge the role of chance in their lives, right? Uh I don't, I don't I will, completely get this because it's. It, I'm not sure it, it actually leads to happiness to ignore the role of chance in your life. I think that I think that a great source of happiness is gratitude, and if you just think you did it all yourself, you got nothing to be grateful for. Right. Uh, it, it's um, and I think the, like seeing just how many different ways the ball could have bounced does leave you more grateful when it bounces your way. And and that leads to better happiness. I can tell you from experience sitting in this chair, 
I'm shocked at the number of really successful people have brought up the concept of, you know, you got to get lucky. Sometimes you get you get a lucky bounce or a good call and it's life changing. And yeah. and it's nice to see certain people recognize that. And the converse is also true. Unluckiness can have, you know, oh, dire impact yeah, yes, for sure. Yes. Uh, so let me ask you about a book you did not write. All right. you, you did this giant article on long-term capital management. And with all due respect to Roger Lowenstein and When Genius Failed, which is one of my favorite books, you that article you did for, I don't remember who it was. The New York Times Magazine. It was, okay. That was a monster piece. I, I very specifically remember that. That could have easily become that sort of book. What? Why did you not go down that rabbit hole? Um, I think I had an aversion to going back to Wall Street from, for yet another book at that time. Was it too soon? It was too soon. And um, I also felt like a magazine article, in a magazine article, I had said everything I really wanted to say about it uh, and didn't have that much more interest. You know, often I start out Almost always, the books start out as magazine pieces. You don't think, oh, I'm going to write a book about that. You, you think, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to write a little something about it. And then it gets even more interesting. So it's 3,000 words, 5,000 mushrooms, words. And all, all of a sudden you realize I've written 10,000 words, but really I wish I could write 80. And that didn't happen with that subject. I'd already written a bunch of it in Liar's Poker. Right. The, the stuff that might have fleshed it out into a book. And it was about this very narrow, peculiar thing that had happened to those guys at Long-Term Capital. and. Mm-hmm. I just thought it would be useful to try to explain it to a lay audience in a way that it wasn't being explained. And you and knew a lot of it, those players from Solomon Rose, right? They, they were my colleagues. I, I knew them quite well. Um, I mean, really, they were the people I talked to every day. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, if I had one of the alternative paths in my life, if I had stayed at Solomon Brothers and managed to remain interested and actually continue to do well— you I'd have ended there. up there. I'd have been there. I'd really? have been there. I wouldn't have been. No one would have ever let me trade anything. But I would have been. I would have been their sales arm because huh. uh, my that's where my boss was. Um, that's amazing. That's what you could have been LTCM's uh, institutional sales rep. Yes, that's that, that's that, a different career path. Different career path. And, and and it would have been. It would have been, you know, as interesting a life in the financial sector as you could have had. Uh, Very lucrative until it all went to zero, and then all of a sudden, went to, yes, <laughs> right. and it all goes to zero. Till, they didn't make the turn at the end. They, <laughs> they set the record on the straightaway, but they hit. All the right, wall. so I have a question for you. Okay, my question for you is: I'm so I'm now in, I'm just an interloper in on Wall Street. I, when I I, sort of. I dip back in every now and then f- when there seems to be a story to write, uh-huh. and then got to educate myself all over again about what's going on because I don't follow it that closely day to day. If you were to drop me anywhere now into the financial sector to write stories where would you drop me wow that's a really interesting question um stories that you're interested in or stories that you're interested interested in in? well first you know i'm a giant behavioral finance junkie so you've already covered that space in in two or three books um so there's three or four things that are are kind of intriguing let me let me tick them off i'm fascinated by people who have a fundamental flaw in their model of the universe. And for whatever reason, they become gold bugs, they become Bitcoin fanatics, they become short sellers. Not that each of those groups are delusional, um, as as any individual can be rational and like gold or rational and buy Bitcoin or whatever, but 
but these like little society, these little communities grow up around these concepts that uh, like if you think about Bitcoin as no government and we're going to have, well, when the government really goes to hell and there's no electricity and running water, good luck getting that little thumb drive to buy you, you know, the, the, the you know what I mean? The, there's no, uh, the rationality sort of fades at a certain point. So that's one area I'm fascinated about. It's um, and there was a book called uh, "The Heretics," written by an Australian, and it had a different name in the U.S. I'm drawing a blank on it, but all these people, flat earthers and and uh, Holocaust deniers, and uh, like just you know really crazy. Turns out they're not crazy. There's just something wrong with their basic model of the universe, and everything built on top of it is Jenga that's going to collapse. Uh-huh. So that's one area. Um, the other area that's really fascinating is, so there's parts of Wall Street that's incredibly successful. The rise of indexing, the rise of ETFs, um, the move towards lower cost, and everybody in those spaces are petrified that they're going to be made obsolete, even though they're the drivers of this. Why? So you were replaced by robots. Um, Yes and no, maybe. I mean, there's this. I'll give you another thing, and you, you. I don't understand that. Why, if it's if indexing is, it's obviously a huge success. ETFs are a huge success. Why? What are they worried about specifically? So, so if we just wiped out, or or if we fill in the blank, indexers, passive uh, uh, ETF um, manufacturers, uh, low cost advocates, if we just completely disrupted the old guard then clearly this is cyclical who's going to come along and disrupt us. Right. And then the third area that I would drop you into, the issue of income inequality and wealth inequality that harkens back to the pre-1929 crash days yep. is very much tied into what you've, you're writing about fairness and what you're seeing in about government. And we're in an alternative timeline. We've kind of jumped our timeline. We're on a different track. And, like, if you were a Star Trek fan, do you remember the bearded Spock in the alternative universe? (laughs) So I kind of feel that we've jumped the timeline, and this isn't our universe. We we need to get back to the timeline where the United States is the country that defeated the Nazis and that we haven't demonized government and that my goddamn street can be—isn't filled with potholes— because Grover Norquist hasn't demonized the idea of how dare government pave the roads? What are you doing? It's confiscation wanting to have an infrastructure. How dare you? Like, uh, I think everybody should take blown out tires and broken axles and dump them on Grover Norquist's front lawn. So it looks like a junkyard, a thousand feet high (laughs) of broken car parts. And, but hold, hold that pet peeve aside. The, the income inequality, the wealth inequality, there's this fantastic chart, I'll email it to you, that you ask people how badly they think the wealth distribution is and how much does the top 20% and the top 10% and the top 1%, top 10th of 1% own relative. And they lay out this this picture of this really unequal society, and they're off by like a factor of 100. It's much worse than people re- right. believe. It's astonishing. If people knew how bad it was in oh, your revolution. Right. And and I yeah. would drop you, if if you're going to say, tell me what next book to write, but I don't know if that's so much a Michael Lewis book as something that would color a Michael Lewis book. That's right. That's uh, right. No, I think I'm the, the whole 
I think inequality is going to be in the backdrop of the next thing I do. I haven't figured out what it is, right. but it does seem the subject of our time. It does seem it does seem a subject that infects everything else. You name, you name the topic: climate change, poli- the politics sure. of the moment. Uh, that our ability to grapple with it is hamstrung by inequality. Uh, now, now draw the Venn diagram of in- inequality, yeah. and then draw the Venn diagram of all the um, cognitive errors and behavioral issues that uh, Kahneman and Tversky have written about, and maybe you can explain to me why people don't understand what's in their own best interest, why they consistently are bamboozled by politicians. And, and I'm not picking one side or the other, but it's pretty clear that most of America, or at least tens and tens of millions of Americans, Every election vote against their own interests. Their own economic interests. Their own economic interests, right. right. And and so what, what matters more? Some ginned up, you know, uh, social divisional issue that... So if... So my issue... Uh, Tribal identity matters a lot. All you got to do is go to a SEC football game. I mean, right. I mean you want... For sure. Right. But, but there's a difference between going to a football game and saying, uh, look at West Virginia and, and the coal people. We're going to bring back coal. No, you're not. That ship has sailed. Right. Wouldn't you be better off if we brought you solar jobs or some other retraining? Uh, are, is everybody, is P.T. Bonham right? Is everybody a sucker? Enough. Enough are. Enough are. That That's quite shocking. Now we're getting into depressing. Right, uh, yes. We don't need to. So, so I, but there is a giant overlap between your interest in behavior stuff and unfairness and how it manifests itself in society right, right so what can be done to fix that um that that's the next book go mike go fix go everything. fix the society right go fix it can you fix us we need some help done all right done so that'll be uh i'll be back in 15 years <laughs> <laughs> so all right now that we've depressed the hell out of everybody let's get to our speed round our favorite oh questions, right okay um that you refused to i didn't want to see preview. the questions you wanted to be kept objective yeah all Not right. objective. I just don't want to have to stew on Surprise. it. All Surprised. Right. Surprised, yes. All right. What was the first car you ever owned, make, year, and model? It was a 1975 CJ5 Jeep. Oh, really? Bright yellow. Huh. Interesting. Um, so uh, you, I don't know if you can answer this question. What's the most important thing we don't know about you? I kind of feel like you're an open book. What don't we know about you? I am, I am an insane sports dad. Yeah, you kind of wrote a book about that. Yeah, no, 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 I didn't really write about that. No, no. So the moment so you kept a lot out of that. Book. My peak insanity is yeah. when I'm watching my kids play sports. Uh huh. That is peak insanity. And for it's me. the refs make you crazy, don't they? No, it's not the refs. <laughs> it's not the, no, no, no. It's not the refs. It's, yeah, it's my kids. You want them to do better? Yes. Uh, I'm just too invested. So, so I try to hide it. Try to right. hide it. I'm not. I'm not doing anything embarrassing. But I am pacing. I'll walk. I have my Fitbit. I'll do 20,000 steps in the outfield during a right. softball game because I can't be near anybody. It's peak insanity. Really? Yes. That, that's, quite, that's quite fascinating. Um, your mentors, who, who mentored the way you thought about finance, writing? So the people who were most influential were all when I was a little kid. Uh-huh. My dad easily is the most. And then after that, uh, the baseball coach I wrote about, Billy Fitzgerald, uh-huh. uh, just kind of like spirit, how you approach life. When, it, when I finally got to putting words on a page for a living, the first editor who really got inside my head was Michael Kinsley, the editor of The New really? Republic. Really? Yes. I, uh, and it was, 
And the message he delivered was a really simple message. It's like, what are you trying to say? Like, cut out, get rid of all the fancy stuff. Just tell me, what, what is it? Does that make any sense? Uh, and just, he taught me a certain ruthlessness towards my own prose. That's interesting. Tell us how you invest your own money. Very, very simply. I mean, I, I do think that I do like to spend as little time as possible thinking about money. Uh-huh. So what, so it's in, so it's it's making some broad decision about uh, asset allocation. Right. Cons- it's usually very Meaning the proportion of bonds yeah, to stocks. Yeah, it's sort of like I bet I have 60, 60% in the stock market. Okay. So, and then probably 10% in California muni, muni bonds. Uh-huh. And the rest in kind of cash uh, at any given time. Not bonds, cash. Just cash. Huh. So, uh, and the stock market stuff is either index funds or Berkshire Hathaway. Now, that's kind of interesting because you used to kind of dunk on Warren Buffett. I dunked once on Warren Buffett, but it made me famous because no one else would do it when I did it. Um, I, I, I'm invested in him for the same reason I dunked on him. And that was, that is, he's got, he's got special deals. His capital gets a special right. treatment in the market. So, that's a, why, you, you want to be he, on that side, and he's right? He's working for free. Uh, so you know, and and I quite admire him and like him and uh, and like the idea of him, and I think his model of a business is going to survive him. I think. Oh, I think they've kind of got it right. Yeah, they put together a great team there, and it, it, their capital will continue to be highly valued. So, so anyway, he's my. That's when I'm feeling sexy, I, and I don't want to buy just an index fund. I buy some Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> so tell us about your favorite books. This is everybody's favorite question. Non-Michael Lewis books. So these aren't the best books. They're the no, books, no, they're, they're your the books, favorite They're the books that have hit me at a time in my life where they just stuck with me. Right. Huckleberry Finn when I was 17 years old. Confederacy of Dunces when I was 18 or 19. The Movie Goer by Walker Percy when I was 17 or 18. George Orwell's Collected Essays when I was maybe 20, 21. Uh-huh. Tom Wolfe's. Uh, Radical Chic and Mao Mao and the Flat Catchers and then The Right Stuff when they came out basically when I was a, te- when I was a teenager. All, all of it, almost all of it is stuff that hit me between the ages of 14, 15 and 23, 24. Since, since I became a writer, um, I just read more critically. It's hard for, harder for stuff to get in quite as deeply. This stuff mm-hmm. I love when I read it but it just doesn't, it, 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 it didn't infect, doesn't infect me in the same way. Huh. Quite, quite interesting. Tell us about When you it. say quite interesting, does that mean it's not interesting? No, it's just a, a verbal tick to move on <laughs> yeah, to the okay, next question. Okay, okay. As opposed to saying nothing and moving on, which is what someone who is professional would do. But after 250 <laughs> yeah. of these, I have now worked my way up to mediocre. I'm at that point in the Dunning-Kruger curve. Okay. Um, <laughs> tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. By the way, I just get by on wit and charm, and, yeah. and actual skills are nowhere to be found. A time I failed and what I learned from the experience. Uh, I mean, there there's lots to choose from. Pick one. Um, all right, I'll pick one from the first grade. In the first grade, we walked over to the library every every day for a library period. And the library had these chairs that kind of holes in the back, you know, cut out back where you're back, kind of lower back. Right. And I spent the whole of library period wondering if I could climb out of my chair through the hole rather than just normally getting up out of it. And at the end of library, I dove through the hole and got so stuck 
that not only the whole class have to file out past me as I'm wearing this chair, but the janitor had to come with like a hacksaw and cut the chair off me because they couldn't pull it off me. And I'd say what I learned from that is if you're going to do something really radical and different, do it alone in your home and don't do it in front of a big crowd. Yeah, but that's the a, first time. That's a, right. That's a sample set of one. So if you were successful, you would have been the hero and everyone would have been talking about you. I think the upside of success in that case <laughs> was probably pretty trivial compared to the downside of failure. It was just mortifying. It was mortifying. So I know what you do for fun, which is basically coach your kids and, and do some travel. But what, what else do you do for fun uh, outside of that? Um, I hike. I do. It's endless, endless kind of activity. Play tennis. Um, I ride. I go out ride, ride bikes with friends. I, don't, I live in just like the best place to do this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. the Bay Area. Uh, so I my my work life is so sedentary. You know, it's sitting there writing. Right. I can't run and write. So. Uh, Everything else tends to be just like active. I go off for a week every year with five guy friends into the woods. Uh, we have this annual trip that we've been doing for six or seven years. It's like the best week of the year, Hi- just hiking and biking in the wilderness. Um, that sort of thing. That uh, sounds like fun. Simple. I, I'm not. A per- I don't have hobbies. I've never had hobbies. Tennis is a hobby. Yeah, kind of. Uh, I like to do. There's stuff I like to do, but I don't really have. I don't really have hobbies. I don't collect anything. I don't collect stamps. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. Who I don't collect stamps. I don't know. Like. You know. I don't, I don't collect books. I, don't, I, I read a lot, but I don't. Right. Uh, I'm not interested in cars. It's stuff like I don't, stuff doesn't interest me all that much. Experiences over stuff. I, that's exactly right. Right. That's Thomas Gilovich and Alan Kruger both said. If you want happiness, spend your money on experiences. Don't you spend your money on junk? And I think that uh, life experience bears that out. It makes me happier. Mm-hmm. Stuff doesn't make me happy. So a millennial comes to you and says, I'm thinking about a career in either finance or writing. What sort of advice would you give them? Um, if someone put it that way, I'm thinking about a career in writing when they're young, I'd worry about them. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, I really love to write. I really love to write. What do I do? Um, so take because, the I, And I tell you why. Because so many young people who've come to me saying, more or less, I want a career as a writer. More or less, they've said, how do I get to have your life? Uh, I asked them, do you, do you actually want to write or do you want to be a writer? And most of them want to be a writer. They don't actually- They have some romanticized notion. notion yeah. about what it is all about and you get to go on TV and talk about your books and you know, all that stuff. Well, 40 writers do, but the other and 10 so, million so don't. And so if you actually love to write, you're just going to write. And uh, just then I tell that person, uh, go do something that interests you and write about it. Start there. Uh, the In finance, I don't know what to tell people because it's so moved on from where right. I was when I was coming in. I, I, it doesn't, it, it, it's not an obviously joyful industry. It, 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 there was a, quite a bit of joy in it when I rolled I was going to say, there are periods where it's more joyful and periods yes, where it's less. It depends less. on where you are in it. I mean, the venture capital world, some of the hedge fund world, some of the private equity world, that seems kind of fun. Um, working for a big Wall Street bank, 
That seems freaking miserable. I well, it was fun back in the day, yeah, but, it's but that was 30 years ago. But I, you know, people wrote books like mine, and they, they shut down the fun. Uh, right. It's your fault. It's partly my fault. It, it, it just like, just generally, working in corporate, publicly traded corporate America does not my idea of fun. Uh, Except for the, those stock options. Yeah, people yeah, people mean, can yeah, make yeah. real money with that. But that's different from fun. For sure. So, so I, I wouldn't, I guess if I were, if like my son said to me, Daddy, I really want to be a Wall Street person, I would say, i try to ship him down to Silicon Valley into a venture capital firm and see if he could be useful there. I think something like that. What do you know about the world of finance, trading, investing, and writing today you wish you knew 30 years ago when you were first starting out? Um, ask the question again. Let me think about it while you ask that question again. What what do I wish I knew? So this isn't I wish I knew to buy Amazon at, at a dollar. Right. It's what knowledge do you wish you had when you began your career in finance? Right. That would have been helpful uh, along the thirty five years that perhaps you learned much later down the path. You know that even the smart people on Wall Street didn't really know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. I took. The biggest mistake I had in my head when I left Solomon Brothers was that the people at the top of Solomon Brothers, the people the the people in the middle of the trading, had some mystical knowledge that I lacked, and I I mean the thing that shocked me the most about the financial crisis was that these firms made these stupid stupid bets. That uh, in these, you know, these zero sum bets that they were all long one way or another, the subprime mortgage market. Um, it would have been, there'd have been some interesting writing to do about those firms between the time I left and the time I came back to, for the financial crisis if I'd appreciated just how moronic, the, the, moronically they were managed. Uh, what's what's interesting is though many of those same people came to you and tried to convince you to stay in finance and you had enough confidence in your own understanding of the world to say thanks but I got other stuff to do you guys but I always had other stuff to do that was my so for me for me it was a really lucky detour uh, into Wall Street because it gave me material but it was always a detour. I mean, I could just as easily have gotten, I don't know, a, a, a job selling insurance. I mean, been, I was going to need a job doing something. And it just was really lucky I ended up in Wall Street. I didn't have any particular passion for Wall Street. Um, it just worked out that way. It just worked out that way. And I, and so, so, but there's no, like, is there any great, I feel like um, my ignorance has been a huge advantage to me. <laughs> so knowing more starting out would have been a disadvantage. Because uh, it forced you to go do the homework yeah, on each of those that, segments. All that, all that. So I, and I, that homework, each each of that homework segments became a book. Uh, yes, that's right. So um, I don't I don't actually honestly wish for some prior knowledge uh, of any of the stuff that, especially in finance. So last question about uh, Solomon Brothers. There was a gentleman in the training program with you named Hans Hofschmid. You both left the same training program in New York. You went to the same London training floor. You're both supervised by John Merriweather. And you had written 
that over the years you tracked your progress by how well you were doing relative to what Hans Hufschmid was doing. And you frequently felt, God, if I would have stayed there, look how much money he's doing, so he's doing so well. And then one day, long-term capital management blows up. He ended up there where you said you would have gone. And now his salary and, and uh, net worth plummets to zero. And you wrote, I was once again satisfied to be paid by the word. <laughs> do you remember writing that? I do remember writing that. And I don't want your audience to think that I was actually like stalking Hans Hofschmidt wondering how much money he made each year. I would just every now and then hear that. Did you hear that Hans Hofschmidt is now worth $50 million? <laughs> and I think, what the hell? <laughs> that, that was my, because that was my alternate, that was my that's the, path, the alternative that's career. the path I would have maybe had. And I I never actually thought I wished I'd done that because I loved what I was doing. It wasn't quite that, but it was like that's the opportunity cost. Mm -hmm. The opportunity cost of being a writer is that I don't have Hans Hofschmidt's $50 million. And when that went to zero, it made being a writer feel even better. Now, I think <laughs> the truth is since then, Hans Hofschmidt has gone and remade his fortune. So I probably am still, I'm still finishing second here. All right, I got I got to get some cash over to Hans because he seems to know what the hell he's doing. With, he's a uh, great guy with capital. <laughs> Michael Lewis, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with author and podcaster extraordinaire Michael Lewis. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, and you can see any of the other 250 or so of these conversations that we have had. Um, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together these podcasts each week. Medina Parwana is my producer slash audio engineer. Our bookers are Taylor Riggs and Michael Boyle. Uh, Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.